0: today. So lately we've been discussing membership and purpose. Also I want to say hi to Dima who's you know as many of you know his family. There's some of us old timers who are back (laughs) and Dima as many of you know their family moved to Mexico and so Dima's here visiting and it's so nice to see him today. So we're having a little reunion (laughs) for some of us. So lately we've been discussing membership and purpose. Some of you are still asking, why is membership necessary? Which is a good question. If our synagogue has existed for 27 years without formal membership, why do we need it now? The answer is multifaceted. The reality is that we are headed into a new era as a community. Building upon and solidifying the foundations laid by our founder, Rabbi Murray Silberling, and further strengthened under Rabbi Dr. Steve Stern. And now my job is to build upon the foundations that they led, leading us further into the future of where God is leading us as a community. The primary reason we are implementing membership is because it forces us to really wrestle together with who we are and what we're about. It also has to do with commitment. Being a member of a community means you are on board with who we are, have a commitment to our vision and purpose and are united with our journey. There's a reason why any formal relationship enters a commitment phase, right? If all you went into a job interview and said, let's just keep this open, you know, you'd say, like, come on, like, I need a job. I need a commitment from you. I'm willing to make a commitment to you if you're willing to make it to me. Or what about a romantic relationship? At some point, you got to put a ring on it, right? Otherwise, you're free to basically, you know what, if this isn't really going to go anywhere, I'm free to explore other options. There's a reason why in every type of relationship that we live in, at some point in that relationship, you have to decide where your commitment lies. Do you want to seal the deal and put a ring on it? (laughs) Or do you want to just let it be a little more open and fuzzy. In my sermon a few weeks ago titled, A Singleness of Heart, we were looking at the end of Acts 2 and we discussed how a unified vision, purpose, and better organization can impact and change the world. Well, today we're going to continue to discuss what it means to be a Messianic synagogue. Several weeks ago, Brett Bremberg and I We're sitting in my office and we were brainstorming just all the cool things that God was doing, but also what we felt where God was leading us. And we decided, wouldn't it be cool if the two of us tag-teamed a sermon series in which we looked at the focus of what it means to have a Messianic Jewish vision and that I approached it as a rabbi, like as a Jewish believer looking at the text And then Brett approached it as a Messianic Gentile, looking at the text. How we both are going to look and wrestle with the text and both bring out of it a perspective that is going to strengthen us as a community together. So I'm kicking off this little series, and Brett will pick it up next week, and then the following week we're actually going to do something jointly together, and we'll see what God does. A Messianic synagogue is not a generic kind of spiritual community. I know a lot of people perceive it as that way, but rather a Messianic, syn- a messianic synagogue is united and propelled first and foremost by the Messianic vision, which then leads to a question. What is <laughs> the Messianic vision, right? The Messianic vision is ultimately the renewal of all things which will come about through the spiritual restoration of the Jewish people. And this is not only for Israel's sake, but for the sake of the entirety of creation and for all the nations of the world. We all know that God is definitely not finished with the Jewish people. According to scripture, for redemption to reach its climax, God must fulfill his promises to Israel. Israel must enter into its fullness and renewal for the Messiah to return. It's interesting that Yeshua doesn't say all the nations of the world, when you say Baruch Baba HaShem then I'll return. It says, Israel, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. So I'll work elsewhere for a little while, but I can't forget about you because of the promises that I made to you. And one day I will gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. When you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, when you as a people declare and call forth the return of Messiah, Baruch Habab b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The fulfillment of all things is an issue of priority and a matter of commission. Throughout the entirety of scripture, God focuses on Israel in order to reach the world. The Jewish people were not chosen to be better or worse than anybody else. Instead, we were chosen and made a priority for all to be redeemed. And this issue of Israel's priority is repeated over and over throughout Scripture. In Paul's letter to the Romans, for example, Paul prioritizes reaching the Jewish people because Paul understands that the priority of Israel ultimately leads to the redemption of the world. This is why Paul writes in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the good news, since it is God's powerful means of bringing salvation to everyone who keeps on believing. To the Jew first, there is a priority here, to the Jew first, but equally to the Gentile. People are not reading this in context because over and over and over again, Paul is talking about priority. And he keeps telling his audience that the priority is Israel first, but equally, not better, not worse, but equally to the nations. To reach all the Gentiles, all Israel must be saved. Our restoration as Jews is fundamental to God making himself known to all. One of the primary reasons Paul wrote his letter to the Romans was to try to explain all of this to a primarily Gentile audience, to explain why God is still not finished with the Jewish people and what their role will be in the ultimate consummation that will occur during the Messianic age. To miss this point risks completely missing and misinterpreting the entire book of Romans. If you don't understand what Paul is trying to do with the letter of Romans, you can get it to say all kinds of things as people have done throughout history. Throughout my interview process here at Beth Emunah, and even since then, I've continually reiterated my passion for reaching the Jewish people. And the words which burn in my heart are the same ones that burned within the Apostle Paul's. In Romans 10.1, Paul wrote, Brothers, Achim, <laughs> my brothers... Agapitoi is what it is in Greek. My heart's deepest desire and my prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation. For I can testify to their zeal for God. And in verse four, he states, for the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah who offers righteousness to everyone who believes. Right? God wants to... God chose and wants to renew Israel for the sake of the nations. My passion for reaching the Jewish people is not simply based on cultural affinity or calling. It is also based on on a prophetic understanding that Israel is God's prophetic timepiece for world revival. It says, to everyone who believes. Basically, because God so loved the whole world, Gentiles and all of creation God chose the Jewish people to be his vehicle to make that happen. God lovingly chose Israel to reach the nations. We've all heard of the Great Commission, right? It comes from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right before the ascension, that Yeshua commissions his disciples. And Yeshua came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations immersing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To go into all of the world, making all people into disciples. This passage, as I just mentioned, is often known as the Great Commission. And let me be clear, it is indeed a great and a noble commission to see all people come to faith in Yeshua. Over the centuries, countless believers in Yeshua have arduously worked and struggled and sacrificed in order to accomplish this commission. However, it is not the only commission mentioned in the Bible. Paul actually speaks of something that is even greater than this commission. Paul understands the Jewish people's prophetic priority And that reaching Israel will produce something greater. And this something greater is what my friend and colleague, Rabbi Dr. Stuart Dowerman, has called the greater commission. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul is struggling to understand the purposes of God for Israel and the nations. Paul is troubled by a seemingly Jewish indifference and often even hostile response to the gospel in contrast to seemingly widespread acceptance of the gospel by the nations, by the Gentiles. Paul is wrestling with with this, and he's doing it publicly in this letter. Paul understands prophecy, and as a loyal and committed Jew, Paul is agonizing to understand both the mysterious Jewish turning away to the gospel and its implications. But in Romans 11, he concludes, In that case, I say, Isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they have permanently fallen away? So he's basically saying, if if many Jews are rejecting Yeshua, does that mean then that all Israel has fallen away and no longer in God's grace? And he says, heaven forbid, quite the contrary. It is by means of their stumbling that deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. Moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles is bringing riches to the latter, then how much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring them? However, to those who are Gentiles, I say this, since I myself am an emissary to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if they're casting Yeshua aside means rec- reconciliation for the world, then what will their acceptance of him mean? It will be life from the dead. Paul says, you Gentiles, I want you to understand why I'm doing this. It is in the hopes that my own people will finally hear this. Because if their stumbling has brought all of y'all... <laughs> near to the gospel and to the kingdom, then how much more will it be when Israel in its fullness accepts and proclaims Baruch HaBab Hashem Paul recognized that Jewish indifference to the gospel was neither universal, it says it's only a hardening in part. It doesn't say, it never says that God ever rejected the Jewish people. It says a partial hardening has happened in part, David Stern translates it as, um, by saying, being placed temporarily in a condition less favored, the Greek makes it very, very clear that this is only a temporary condition, and it is not in totality, it is not permanent, it lasts only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, right? Right? So does this mean that, and this is where it gets complicated, if God hasn't rejected the Jewish people, then the Jewish people, whether they believe in Yeshua or not, are still God's people. I'm not saying they don't need salvation or anything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it places the Jewish people in an entirely different situation than any other people in the world. Any other people in the world, apart from Yeshua, have no connection to the God of Israel, apart through Yeshua. But the Jewish people are somehow in this Holding cage, right? And somehow God is incubating them until the time that the veil is removed, because the, t- the veil is only temporary, right? And it's only partial. It's only barely there. Not barely, but it's there, but it's only partial. Doesn't mean they're completely lost. It means they're lost in regard to Yeshua. As Paul pronounces, by no means, heaven forbid, God has not done away with nor rejected the Jewish people. In verse 12, moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel is being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles, is bringing riches to the latter, then how much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring them? The partial hardening that has happened to Israel is neither permanent nor final. As such, Paul looks forward to the time when he calls the fullness of Israel. As Rabbi Dowerman notes, according to Paul's logic, if the fullness of the Gentiles is the Great Commission, then the fullness of Israel, which Paul refers to as greater riches, is rightly termed the greater commission, right? If reaching Israel is the greater ful- the fulfillment, then we can rightly call it the greater commission. What makes the commission greater is that it brings greater results. If Israel's temporary stumbling results in the reconciliation of the entire world, meaning the fullness of the nations, then the fullness of Israel will mean greater riches, life from the dead, the great resurrection, and the ultimate redemption of the entire cosmos. This is why he then writes in Romans twenty-five through 11, 25 through 30, for brothers, I want you to understand this truth which God formerly concealed, but is now revealed. He's saying this was a mystery, right? This was concealed, why God would do this, but now it's being revealed, so that you won't imagine that you know more than you actually do. It is that stoniness, to a degree, which has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters into its fullness, and that in this way, all Israel will be saved. As the Tanakh says, out of Zion will come the Redeemer. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. With respect to the good news, they are hated for your sake, but with with respect to being chosen, they are loved for the patriarch's sake. For God's free gifts and his calling are irrevocable. How many times have we heard that phrase used in all kinds of contexts? Well, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, which is true. But the context here is he's talking about the gifts and calling to Israel are irrevocable. God will not change them. Verses 25 and 26 sum up the Messianic vision. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Paul correctly refers to this astonishing revelation as a mystery. Yet for us today, this is more than a mystery. It challenges long-held assumptions and paradigms. What God is up to in the world will eventually culminate in two fullnesses. Does everybody hear me? Two fullnesses. Not just one. The fullness of Israel and the fullness of the nations. Right? This is what God set out to do. It's not just concerned with Israel's fullness, but the fullness of the nations as well. Paul makes clear that God's consummating purposes for the Jewish people are not simply an extension of the Great Commission, but rather another fullness with God's unfolding redemptive plan. God is working through redemptive history to bring about the fullness of Israel and the fullness of the nations, and these two must go hand in hand. Yeshua will not return until one day when we see Israel and the nations working together in order to accomplish the purposes of the kingdom. The two must go hand in hand. So what will the, uh, the fullness of Israel look like? We don't have time to go into it because we're already running over time but basically you can read about it in Ezekiel 36 and 37. What God promises that the fullness of Israel will look like is it will be Jews remaining Jews and living in covenant fidelity to Hashem, of Jews living out the fullness of Torah, of our recognition of Yeshua as both the incarnate Torah and our Messiah, and the return of the Jewish people back to our land. That's what the fullness of Israel looks like. The fullness of the nations looks a little different. But again, equally and together, we'll work together in order to accomplish the purposes of of heaven. When I was living in Hungary, Rabbi Michael Wolf, who some of you might know, was a, a visitor and spoke at our congregation. And he said this powerful phrase, which always stuck with me. He said, a visitor to a Messianic Jewish congregation cannot dictate the vision. They must catch it. Let me repeat that. A visitor to a Messianic Jewish congregation cannot dictate the vision. They must catch it. There's a lot of people who come and they visit us, and they're always saying, well, Rabbi, this is what you guys should be doing. That's not what we're called to do. As holy and awesome and as noble as sometimes those suggestions are. But we have a specific calling and a specific purpose as a Messianic Jewish congregation. We're not a generic spiritual community. We have a purpose and a calling. It means that the vision of our community is not our own agenda, but it's God's. We must exist as a house of worship where the messianic vision can be embodied and lived out. As a synagogue, our priority is reaching the Jewish people in fulfillment of a greater commission. This does not mean we do not care about reaching all people. But we also have to keep in mind that the Gentile Christian church is not equipped for the task of the greater commission. If somebody isn't focused on reaching Israel, who's going to reach Israel? It's our task. I think of the words that Mordechai spoke to Esther. You know, perhaps deliverance for the Jewish people will... If you're not willing to speak up, perhaps deliverance for the Jewish people will come from someplace else. But you and your family will perish. God says, I will make it happen, right? I've promised that redemption will come to the Jewish people at some point. But either it can happen now through you or perhaps it can come from someplace else. You know what? I'd rather God uses us. And remember, again, a lot of this time it, we forget that the priority of Israel is, is the priority of the nation." Right? God will use Israel to create life from the dead. So what does this mean for us or for Bethamunah? What it means is this is why we exist as a community, to be a spiritual home where Jewish people who have found Messiah can be nurtured and discipled and a safe place for those who are not yet believers in Yeshua who can explore their faith in Yeshua, we are also indeed a home for Jews and Gentiles. But Gentiles within a Messianic congregation must understand and self sacrifice for the Messianic vision to labor together towards the fullness of Israel. This is not about egos or making people feel displaced, but actually empowered to support who we are and what we're about we do not shy away from our purpose to see all Israel saved. If you resonate with that purpose, if that vision burns within you, regardless of your background, you are welcome to partner with us in seeing this happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, regardless of your background, if you resonate with the purpose and the vision of our community, welcome (laughs) to suffer along with us, right? You're welcome to do so, but it's not going to change our purpose. Our purpose is the same. Because God loves the whole world. For God so loved the whole world, Gentiles and all of creation, God chose the Jewish people to be his vehicle for world redemption. Therefore, we will boldly proclaim, for I am not ashamed of the good news, since it is God's powerful means of bringing salvation to everyone who keeps on trusting to the Jew first, but equally to the Gentile. As a synagogue, our primary purpose is to the Jew first. Again, we of of course want to see all people come to know Yeshua, but God has raised us up for a specific purpose. We are not a generic spiritual community, a one-size-fits-all kind of a place. God has raised us up for a specific purpose, the greater commission of seeing all Israel saved. Ribbona Shalom, Master of the Universe, I humbly come before you and I pour out my heart before you under the guidance of the Ruach, that you would help us see your passion, that the messianic vision is not anybody's agenda, it's your agenda. And it's your purpose. There's no way around that you chose Israel. But you didn't choose Israel to be better or worse than anybody else. You chose Israel for a purpose. And that purpose was to be a light to the nations. That's why we exist. To sanctify the name of God to be your people. So that we can be a light to the nations and and turn the world upside down. God, if you used the earliest Jewish disciples, 12 Jewish dudes to turn the world upside down, then think what you can do when all Israel is saved. So God, help us to never lose that passion and that desire to serve your agenda and not ours. Because this really is not just about us. The entire cosmos is at stake. Open our eyes so that not only we would see your Torah, but we would see the living Torah, Yeshua the Messiah, the Word made flesh. And that we would speak with boldness outside of these four walls, declaring to all who would listen, to the Jew first, but equally to the Gentile, that the Messiah has come and his name is Yeshua and he can set you free. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.